0: I'm here to help you grow and learn as a Resource Room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hi, Dana. Thanks so much for being on the Resource Room podcast. I'm so glad to have you today.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me join.
0: Let's go ahead and jump in with you just sharing with the listeners what you do and what your role as a
1: BCBA looks like every single day. Sure thing. So um, I'm a BCBA that stands for Board Certified Behavior Analyst. And my role um, right now, I work in public schools. And my role is really to provide behavior support and consultation to um, teaching staff, the professionals at school, and then the um, kiddos who are directly on my caseload. How many students are on your caseload? Just I'm curious. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think right now I'm right around 20, but the amount of time I spend with each student varies. And a lot of times my support ends up being for um, a whole small group of students. So they all end up on my caseload, but more it's that consultation piece with um, either the special education teacher or the general education teacher who um, has all those kiddos in their room.
0: What kinds of mistakes do you feel like, you know, obviously you get to work with gen ed teachers and special ed teachers. What kinds of mistakes do you feel like you're seeing over and over again amongst either maybe just gen ed or maybe just special ed, but I imagine it's probably across the board. What mistakes do you see people making?
1: Um, I think really the hard thing right now, you know, we talked so much during the pandemic about the impact on behavior and um you know just the the socialization that kids had during that time and i think you know it it's twofold we have kids who are coming back to school who are jumping right back in and who don't have some of those prerequisite learner skills or um you know they don't remember what the school rules are and so there's that piece of the the puzzle and then you know i think we have We've set the expectations really high, right? To just keep going, just keep moving forward. And so I think, you know, being able to take that step back and really look at, you know, what. Is sort of that specific student's needs. What are they trying to communicate through their behavior? Um, I do feel like for most kids, behavior is communication. So they're using their body in place of their words. And what are their words trying to say? And can we help them? Can we teach them a better strategy or a better way to get those needs met? And do you think
0: sometimes we overcomplicate things? And we we I often see teachers are making it about them. Instead of what is the child trying to say or what are they trying, you know, just like you said, behavior is communication. What are they trying to tell us?
1: Yep. And I think that there's this televisability piece, right? Um, kids who are having um, any sort of challenging behavior, they're often loud. It, it draws attention really quick. And so I think a lot of times what teachers, um, their sort of jump to perspective is that, you know, everybody's looking at me and what am I going to do next? Um, and so that can be a little scary for some people sometimes, you know, you have all eyes on you watching how you're going to handle this situation. Yeah. I think that's what I really love about my job is is I can jump in and help those people. I can give them those go-to strategies so that they have, you know, a bigger toolbox for when a child is having a challenging uh challenging time with anything that we can really, you know I can jump in and say, hey, here's you know some great strategies that typically work in this sort of situation. Um, you know, for them to be able to try it out and really expand on on the strategies that they have. What is something that you feel like you're recommending that a lot of teachers do?
0: Or maybe, it's, maybe this is a better way to phrase it. If there was like one thing that you wish all general ed teachers could or would do, what would that be that you think might help just a wide array of students? Maybe not even just students with emotional disabilities or, you know, those behavior concerns that we're monitoring. What do you think could be just a broad strategy that helps many students?
1: Yep. I think one of the most important things that um, teachers can do with their students is really building that rapport with them. So being able to look at who their learners are and making that nice positive connection between um, themselves and the learner. And um, once, you know, a teacher sort of has has given that, has set that sort of parameter and can be that supportive person, um, the the student's just naturally going to be more of a willing participant in the, the things that they're being asked to do, right? So I feel like building rapport is
0: something that honestly all teachers should be doing anyway with all students. And so maybe that's something that for some of us comes very naturally. Have you ever worked with teachers or is there something that comes to mind for maybe those teachers who it just... The relationship is not naturally building or maybe it's a personality clash. Do you have any advice or things that could maybe be done for those situations? I have a couple
1: that come to mind, honestly, right now from this school year. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that that's a really uh, a tough thing for some people. Um, We've talked about it in my setting at times with some of those kiddos who um, for lack of a better word, have a less visible disability, right? Like they just sort of look like they're being bad and they have sort of, they're controlling those situations. But in actuality, these kiddos are really struggling. Things are really hard for them. And sometimes it's hard to, to really demonstrate that for a teacher and, and get them to see that it's not a um, it's not a won't for that student, it's a can't. They can't do it, even though it looks like maybe they can and they're capable verbally. They're capable of it. Um, You know, physically, motorically, they're capable of it. But for some reason, there's just a barrier there. And I think that, you know, a lot of times the the teachers and the paraprofessionals and other school staff that I work with, those are the kids they really struggle with, because um, sometimes those kiddos, their behavior looks deliberate. Like they're making a choice not to do that thing. But in actuality, they're, they're really not making that choice. And so it's hard for people to get on board. And And those are the kiddos that it's harder to build that rapport with because, um, you know, you may not see the good as easily or as quickly as you you do for some of those other kids.
0: I once also had, it was my special education director, and she once said to me, If academically we had kids who like one day they could read a word and the next day they couldn't, we really wouldn't think anything of it. We'd be like, well, they just need more practice with this. But when we look at behavior, we like freak out when well, yesterday you did X, Y, and Z. And then today you're refusing or today you're not. Why do we look at behavior so differently? But it really is, you know the same idea if they could do it all the time they would do it but it's just very difficult for them
1: right yeah you make a great point and um one of the things that i end up talking to a lot of school staff with uh, about is um something called setting events so it's sort of um when we talk about behavior we talk about the behavior and then we talk about the antecedent what comes before the behavior how are we setting the learner up for success and then the consequence, what happens after the behavior, but before the antecedent, there's something called setting events, and it's: did the child sleep well? Did they uh, eat breakfast that morning? Did they, you know, leave the house in an ideal state? And those setting events can really influence sort of how a kid approaches their day, and you know, if they. Didn't sleep well and had a fight with somebody at home and didn't eat breakfast and then come to school and immediately someone's like, "Hey, come do this," and they're not in an optimal state for learning. That sometimes is really hard. So you'll see some of that discrepancy that you described, where one day you, hey, yesterday you were able to do this, and for some reason today you can't. And sometimes we can't see those things, those those setting events, those things that maybe prompt why they can't do it on any given day.
0: And some students might be more than willing to talk about that and get it off their chest where I have one student in mind where she doesn't tell anything. I mean, even in a state of being upset, she's not going to talk to you. And so things like that, you may never know all of those things or three days later you might find out, but in that moment, you're not going to know all of that. And so I think it's important to just be mindful
1: of all of those setting events. Right. And one of the strategies that I've used with some of my learners is um, a little check-in, check-out system. So especially for those kids that um, maybe do get more special education support, um, where we're able to do those good check-ins, it allows us to get a barometer on not only their mood in the morning, but what might have happened the day before or Um, in the morning before they came to school and it sort of helps us set some goals for their day and then the check out at the end of the day allows us to circle back and say hey you know you started your day at a you know a 5 on the scale from 1 to 10 how are you feeling now did your day get better were we able to make some imp- improvements did you meet any of your your goals that you set today and so for a couple of my kiddos that's a really good strategy and we sort of have discovered things that we didn't know was going on um you know i had a kiddo who i think breakfast was a struggle every morning so we were able to sort of say like hey we can come up with a game plan and adapted his schedule so that his day starts by eating some breakfast at school. So if you didn't get adequate time to eat breakfast at home, that's okay. You can start your day eating breakfast at school. We just needed to know that piece of information. And, you know, 90% of the time his day starts in a better spot than when he was coming in not having eaten breakfast.
0: And all it took was just a little bit of time going back to building rapport, building a relationship and knowing and understanding To where he can communicate that with you. Exactly. Yep. That's perfect. So how do you feel? And sometimes I feel like the environment is really either a make or break situation. How do you help general ed teachers prepare their classrooms? Maybe it's different tools or strategies or or what? How can we prepare the environment for success for a student who maybe is explosive or does refuse often? What kinds of strategies do you recommend to your teachers?
1: Yep. So um, that's some of my favorite strategies. Um, typically, we call them antecedent-based interventions. Um, and it's how you set up that environment for success, what things are in place to help that learner be successful. Um, any sort of visual supports are a good strategy. Those can be really individualized for a specific learner. Um For kiddos with executive functioning challenges, a lot of times, um, like one of my favorite strategies is to set up sort of what materials they need for any given subject. So let's say for math, they need, you know, their pencil box with their math manipulatives, their, their pencil, their math notebook, and their math textbook you can put those sort of out on their desk, take a picture of what that looks like, an overhead picture. And then when it's math time and it's time for them to get the supplies they need, you can just say, hey, find your math tool picture, see what what supplies you need. And it really helps sort of um, foster that independence for students and also allows any of that support staff to be able to take that step back and um, help them, but not sort of overprompt them by getting all those materials and tools out for them. So that's one of one of the strategies I really love. Um, using timers with kids and transitional warnings is another one. Um, something that's come up a lot in my setting this year with around transitions is um, being able to highlight for people why transitions, even with a transition warning and a timer, why transitions are still difficult. It's hard to go from recess having the most fun you could ever have in your day to going to writing, right? That, yeah. that, that yeah. leap, even with the best transition warnings and visual timers and all that stuff, that leap is really hard for some kids. And so one of the strategies that I use with a lot of my kiddos is we put in a neutral transition activity. So right in the middle between your most favorite and your least favorite activities, you put something you kind of like to do. Um, So for some kids that might be like a quick puzzle or a word search or a coloring page where they can sort of, um, it eases that transition between The thing I was really loving doing and the thing I don't really like doing and sort of breaks that up in between.
0: I think that's great and also gives them something to maybe not look forward to, but they're going to look forward to it so much more than writing or so much for, you know, than whatever it would be. And they're going into a safe setting, oftentimes then probably one-on-one or a two-on-one, you know. I think that's a great way to be able to transition transition from one thing to
1: the next. Absolutely, I think the other thing too is um, really just integrating um, a student's preferences into their learning activities. So if you know that you know, you know, my one of my friends doesn't like to do math, but you can integrate. Spider-Man into the math word problem, Spider-Man and his webs, all of a sudden math is not so challenging anymore. Um, it's a little more fun. It's a little more engaging. So being able to integrate those interests has is a helpful strategy to use. I really liked your idea of taking
0: a picture of their desk above and then, you know, being able, that could be a reference for them. How do you organize that? Let's say, you know, I mean, even at a most simple, basic level, kids would have reading and writing and math, maybe a science or social studies time, maybe even then, you know, some independent working at stations. How do you organize that where then it could be like, okay, we're going from reading to math time. Here are your materials.
1: Yep. Um, I love doing any sort of um, color coding visual supports, organizational tools. So for some kids that may look like, um, I use those two gallon sized bags where you could put all their materials, corresponding materials in and zip it up. So you have your math bag that you can pull out of your desk and all your materials already tucked inside. That might be a strategy. Uh, For some other kids, we utilize those little either three drawer bins or the taller bins that have all the drawers where you could put all their materials. So they may not even use the inside of their desk for their materials and instead might have their stuff organized right into those sliding bins. Um, Other kiddos, we will use um, like a command strip hanging on the side of their desk to hang their visual tools so that they're maybe you take the pictures and put them all on a ring and then the ring hangs from the side of the desk. Um, and the other thing I've been loving using this year is, um, the little five by seven or four by six size photo keeper boxes. A lot of people use them to make task boxes uh-huh. and stuff. Uh-huh. I've actually been using them as uh, visual toolkits for kids. And so I've been making a lot of five by seven size visuals and making them these little personalized toolkits. And they're a lot easier to carry around than having, you know, The clipboard and the binder and the ring of pictures and all the things just condenses right down into this little five by seven box. And my kiddos who I've integrated this with, they have really good ownership over their boxes. They love taking their boxes with them. They kind of go wherever they they go. Um, For some of my kids, if they have a token board, it sits right on top of that box. And then their other visuals are inside Um, some of the kids have little reinforcers that live inside their toolbox. So it's been a really good strategy for a lot of the kids that I work with this year. I think that's
0: great. Then too, going back to student interests, maybe what's on the outside could be something that they like. Maybe it's their favorite color. Maybe, you know, the things inside are, you know, reinforcers to what they like. So I think that's amazing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I have a a little girl that I work with who just she has a love of an Encanto, everything Encanto. And so we just made her token board Encanto puzzle pieces on the front of the board. And so she really like is into it and it's an effective strategy for her because she owns that she wants to get the pieces put on. She loves seeing that that puzzle go together and the the picture sort of all come together when she earns all her tokens. So Definitely incorporating those interests on something like a toolkit is a great way to um, bring it full circle for those kids.
0: And then, like you said, it's small, so you can take it with you to PE if that's where you're earning your next token. Or, you know, it's time to use the restroom, time to go to recess, time to go to resource, wherever you're going. It's easy to take along with you. For us, a lot of times at our school, we will bind them together using like a comb binding, you know, maybe it's their schedule, their token board, you know, things like that. But then it's a whole piece of paper, typically, you know, I mean, obviously, you could cut the comb down if it was a half sheet or whatever. But I kind of like that idea of the task box,
1: because then it's just so small. Yeah, and and like I said, the kids really... The at least the ones I've used it with take really good ownership over it. So they like grabbing their box and often they'll just grab it as they walk out of the room and wherever they're going, they'll take it with them. And just become um, habit over time. Exactly. And, and as long as those preferred interests are tied into, they want to utilize that because it looks like something that's fun and engaging for them. And really it's their, you know, vi- all their visual tools put in there, but they, you know, they definitely gravitate more towards taking it with them because it's reinforcing just by whatever pictures on the front or whatever tools are inside of it.
0: What other visual tools do you find yourself using? I mean, you mentioned pictures of, you know, whatever objects. For me, I sometimes when I'm thinking visuals, I'm thinking like a picture schedule. Is there something else I'm missing or something else
1: that you use a lot of?
0: Yep. That's a great
1: question. Um, I've been using visuals for, um, not only those picture schedules and for kiddos who maybe need, um, pictures for communication, but I've also been using, um, visuals for feelings. So like being able to express, I feel what I feel and what I need at that moment. And so for some of the kiddos, um, if they, you know, really engage in challenging behavior because they can't get those wa- those words out the way they need to or want to. Um, having a tool like that where they can express, you know, I'm feeling upset, I need a break, or I need to take a walk. Um, so a tool like that, I've used um, little visual boards for time management for, um, let's see, all those executive functioning pieces, any sort of organization to make a task list of the upcoming jobs that you have to do. Um, I'm trying to think, Oh, um, like any sort of breathing or calming strategies. So for a lot of kids, we'll tuck some of those, uh, whatever their calming strategies or coping tools are inside their bins. Um It varies from kiddo to kiddo, and I think based on ability level and stuff, but um, we definitely branch out a lot further than just pictures for uh, visual schedules. I think sometimes, and maybe I'm
0: wrong, I as a resource room teacher, I share students with our behavior teacher, but long ago, that was not the case. I had them, and I'm trying to juggle seeing, you know, 30 kids, 40 kids. And then also provide consultation that I'm like, I don't know what y'all want me to do with these kids, you know, like I want to help, but I can't be in the room all the time and I can't do, so I just think sometimes we need that toolbox. We need some of those things to know, how do I help this kid? Because it's not that I don't want to, it's just the overwhelm and the time and and things like that.
1: Right. And I, I totally get that because I, you know, being a consultant and I work in um, three different elementary schools where I have to split my time between all three of those schools and amongst all the students that I have in those schools. And so it can be hard because, you know, I might have missed Monday afternoon, and then, you know, Wednesday morning, when I go back to that school, I find out that, you know, Monday afternoon and Tuesday were really tough days for a certain kid. And we have to go back and sort of backtrack and see where were, um, you know, the barriers, where did we sort of, where did it fall off the rails? Yeah. And how do we get back on track for those, those kiddos? So that definitely can be hard. And I think just making any sort of tools the visual tools are great, but also what I'll do for um, staff is make like a written protocol for how to use those tools. And that can be helpful as well to making sure everybody's on the same page, especially if we tuck a new plan into somebody's, like maybe they have a new token board in their um, toolkit. So that way, if there's a little protocol that goes with it, it allows the staff to all sort of be on the same page with understanding how to use that and you know maybe there's a certain timer that's associated with it or certain reinforcers that are associated with it.
0: How do you get Gen Ed teachers to buy into that? Because I mean sometimes it's great when we're talking about in theory, but in real life when I'm trying to run stations and do this and get the kids to the bathroom and somebody just threw up, the last thing I care about is a token board. Or, you know, as gen ed teachers, I've I've heard those things. So how do we get teachers to buy into things like that
1: i think the the buy in is really one of the hardest parts you you sort of hit the nail on that one um and right they have to see the proof of it working and so that's where it can sometimes be tricky is that um i have a lot of people who come to me and say i tried it your way yesterday and it didn't work so can we do something <laughs> yesterday. different yesterday and- <laughs> Yesterday. So as in one day. And so a lot of times I'll say to people like, hey, can you just give it a try for this many days? And often if they can get over that hump of, um, you know, feeling like it's not working or feeling like it's hard then all of a sudden they can sort of see like, oh, wait a second, this strategy is working. And there are times where the strategy isn't the best strategy, and we might pivot and change that. But I think trying it for a certain number of days. I also, so my background of experience before I was a BCBA, I was a general education classroom teacher. I've been a special education classroom teacher. Um, I've been a paraprofessional, so I've sort of spent time in all the different roles. And I feel like it gives me a little bit of a well-rounded experience in determining what is doable for these different professionals. And, um, so I try to always look at it under that lens and try to say like, Obviously, something would be different in a general education classroom, what the teacher can provide for that student in terms of a behavioral intervention plan versus a kiddo who might be in a substantially separate classroom in which it's smaller group size and that sort of thing. Um, If they have a paraprofessional with them, it might be easier to implement something versus if they don't. And so I think I do try to look at when I'm providing resources and tools for um, these professionals, what what is actually attainable in those situations? And trying to meet somewhere in the middle between that behavior management piece, you want that to get better, and what's feasible in that classroom setting.
0: I think that's great. And kind of like you, I taught gen ed for a little bit. And so whenever we're in our behavior intervention meetings, sometimes they're throwing out ideas left and right. I'm like, y'all have never been in a gen ed classroom where you're just trying to do so much. And I'm not saying that as special ed teachers, we don't do so much. Obviously, everybody does. You have all these things, but it's like, it's just the demand is so much different and the overwhelm and you have 25 kids and you're trying to teach grade level standards. And we have to be mindful of those things and, and getting teachers to buy in. Some do it
1: more than others. And so, you know. Exactly. And I, I think one of the things too, is um, I always am advising people to sort of pick your battles. So to look at a situation, let's say you're a gen ed teacher, you have, Zero assistance in your classroom. You have uh, a, either one or a couple kiddos that really have challenging behavior throughout the day, and you're trying to manage all those pe- pieces. And I think it's important to take that step back and look at what are the most important pieces. You know, a lot of gen ed teachers use the language around must do's and may do's. And so for that particular kid, what is their must-dos for the day? If you were going to accomplish one to two things, what would it be? And really making sure that those are the times that they are supported and you're, you know, maybe you're using the behavior management strategies during those times so that you can get those must-dos done. And then maybe the things that are less important in that particular day, um, maybe they have an alternate work activity that they're doing that's at their level that's Fun and engaging, or you know, maybe that's when they get to, you know, read a book or do a puzzle or an alternate activity so that you can manage between the groups. What would you say to a Jenna teacher? Because you
0: know they're out there. (laughs) Everything is a must-do. Everything is a I don't bend. This is what we do. This is the expectation. If you're in first grade, this is what you do, or if you're in second grade, this is how we do it, you know what would you say to that teacher who really everything is a
1: must do? Yeah. I mean, it's so tricky because I've definitely come across um, situations where that's the case. And, you know, I think we're asking learners to be flexible all the time. And as professionals, we also have to look at ourselves and and dig deep down into what we can be flexible on. And so um, some of the Tips, sort of it from an antecedent management strategy that I will um, give people is, you know, can you highlight, if it's all a must do, can you highlight, you know, one that can be the best work sample from that? Um, so, for example, I have a, a student who, he's one of those kids that loves to do things his way. He doesn't want to have to do, so like if it's a math, you um, um, some sort of math activity. He doesn't want to have to show all his work. He wants to just do it his way. He knows he can get the right answer and he wants to be done with it. And so um, I've worked closely with his teacher to be able to develop some strategies for, you know, these are the ones that you demonstrate the way school's asking you, the teacher's asking you, the curriculum's asking you to do it. And then these five, you can do your way. So it sort of gets that balance where you're still going and you're still, um, you know, you're embedding just that littlest bit of flexibility into the must-dos across the board. I think that's a really good idea. And keeping in
0: mind a little bit of power and control for that student will go a long way, you know, and, and just finding ways to incorporate that naturally where both, both people are compromising. Both people are happy in that scenario.
1: Exactly, and one of the um, strategies that I love giving people—you um, can—it—it it comes under a bunch of different names: controlled choices, contrived choices. But basically, um, you know, doing the work assignment is not a choice, but you may embed some choice in how they're going to do it. So, do you want to use, you know, a pencil to do it, or do you want to do it in crayon? Do you want to do it on the whiteboard or do you want to use the manipulatives to do it? Um, So being able to embed those choices into that activity, do you want to do all the evens or all the odds? You have some choice. And then that way, the kiddo, you're sort of giving that, that power and that control back and you're sharing it in some extent. So you're not saying, you know, this is what you have to do. I'm setting the rules, the end. You're saying, This is what you have to do, but let's meet in the middle. How can we compromise on it? And we can both sort of be happy with that outcome. Yeah, I love that. And something that
0: is so simple. And honestly, sometimes I guess what I want to say to Gen Ed teachers is it's like, do you really love to give yourself a headache every day? Do you really love to fight this battle every day? Let's do all the odds. Let's do all the evens. whatever it might be. And and find a way to just get it done. Or do we really need to do twenty problems to know if we can do this multiplication skill or this area and perimeter skill? No, we don't. <laughs> if we do half of them,
1: if we do right. a quarter of them, you're going to have a good idea of if they know that or not. Exactly. And the way I sort of approach it with them as well is, um, it's a you know quality over quantity. So if you're gonna have that back and forth battle for the better part of the entire subject in, um, you know, trying to get that kiddo to, to do the the must do's, the whole page of work. And instead, if you could get them to just do one and they can demonstrate that knowledge, is that more effective for that learner than, um, you know, finishing that whole page. So that really being able to take that step back and look at that quality piece. If they did one with their absolute best work, can that be acceptable rather than, you know, rushing through or, you know, flopping on the floor and crying throughout the whole math and never getting the math worksheet done. Right. Then you may fight for
0: 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you still don't have any work. What if you fight for three whole minutes and get a, a problem that's done really well? You know? Yep.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, where do you find some of your visuals? I know that's hopping back just a little bit, but you were talking a lot about that. And I I feel like that is one of the biggest game changers that is so simple to implement. But like for me, I have a Lesson Picks account. And so I can upload things. I can download things that are already there. Where do others find
1: things, find some of those visuals? Yep, Um. so I think a lot of, People, especially in the special education field, um, have access to Boardmaker, Mayor Johnson symbols. A lot of people use those. I use Smarty symbols when I create a lot of my visuals, um, and they do have pretty inexpensive licenses. Um, Boardmaker always historically has been very expensive for teachers. Usually it's mm-hmm. like a school account. Um, that they allow people to use. So um, I find that Smarty Symbols typically is my go-to. It's a similar system to the Lesson Picks or um, those other ones. But visuals are hard, right? Because you can only make them so generalized for kids to be able to understand them. I do create a lot as part of my um, teacher pay teacher business. And so there are a lot of um, visual supports that I'll put on there. Um, including, you know, token board frames and that sort of thing. Um, So they're out there if you if you get the right search terms and you sort of know what you're looking for. But it's definitely tricky to find ones that are really individualized for those learners. And that's something I'll link in the show notes, both
0: to the Smarty symbols, but also to your TPT store. If there are some resources that you think might be a good starting point, I can link to those. Um, Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that way people could find things. Because I think as special ed teachers, we're more than willing, but sometimes just don't always know. I, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I was not trained in even some of the vocabulary that you've used. You know, yeah, I picked it up along the way, but then there are also multiple terms you've thrown out. And I'm like, how do I not know this? How am I allowed to help these children without that information? And so I know others are in the same boat. And so if you had things that could be like, here's a starting point, is it going to work for every kid? Maybe not, but it at least gives you an avenue to explore, a strategy to give to teachers and be like, let's start here and then go from there, you
1: know? Exactly. And you know, back a couple of years ago, one of sort of how I got my start in in doing this and sort of built out my social media pages was through um, what I was calling infographics. So behavior infographics. And really what I was doing was taking the more complicated behavioral terms and breaking those visuals down um, or breaking those the wording of those techniques down into a visually engaging support. And that those would be utilized for um, not for students, but for parents or teachers or other school professionals who were like, hey, I really want to learn more about how, you know, rapport building works, maybe, or giving positive praise and how those different techniques work. Um, But, you know, when you read it in a, especially from an evidence-based perspective, right, if you read it from a sort of research journal article, type standpoint, that can be really wordy and can be really complicated and hard to understand. And so one of the things that I like to do is be able to boil that information down into like really um, concise action steps for people so they could say like, oh, I want to learn more about that. And in one page, they can look at this visual support and understand a little more clearly how to use that in their own practice.
0: And even then, be able to share it with other teachers or paraprofessionals or even administration who they don't they don't always know what to do or what is the best um, either. And so, I think that would be helpful to have available. That's wonderful that you did that just to be able to share and help people have even just a good foundation for where to go with with some of this because it can be very overwhelming. Exactly. Absolutely. All right, Dana. Well, I have absolutely loved chatting with you today. I think we can probably talk for hours, honestly, about behavior, and I would just sit here and soak it all up. But how about you tell teachers where they can find you, whether it be social media or your blog or wherever, because I'm sure they're going to have more questions and want to check out some of your, of your visuals and things like that.
1: Yep. So you can find me, um, my handle across, uh, the internet is bias behavioral B I A S behavioral. Um, and so I have a teacher's pay teacher's store and all my visuals have been uploaded there. I have a website with a blog and then, um, most often you can find me on Instagram or on Facebook.
0: That's perfect. And that's where I found you was on Instagram and I had followed and I'm like, I need her on the podcast. We've got to talk about behavior because you do, you have a lot, a lot of information. And I am not a big Instagrammer because I think I'm too old, but lately I've been coming around to the Instagram. So I, I enjoy your page because it is just like little things that anybody could do. And it's like, okay, I'll I'll try that or that was good information so that I can start using
1: that in my room or understanding that right I'm with you on the Instagram stuff, too, because I definitely it's hard for me to get on board with all the stories and talking to the camera. But I love putting my infographics and the engaging visuals on there. So I'm still using Instagram in sort of the old school way by putting pictures in the posts. But that's all right. Because if it's helping a couple people, then it's worth it. Yes. And it gives a good place for people to go.
0: And maybe they're not going to ever see a story from you. And that's where I am. I'm like, I don't even have time to, you know, like, I don't know, clean my house, much less do all the things on Instagram. I just, I can't do it, but I enjoy watching others who do make time for that. So I'm glad that you're, you're on and you do share, um, your wealth of knowledge in that area. Yep. Um, also before we
1: go, where did bias come from in your name? Yeah. So actually it's a funny story. I'm glad you asked. Um, so actually the longer version of my company name is behavioral interventions and solutions. Ah, there you go. What I quickly learned is that is too long to put on (laughs) anything, but I had already established my LLC before I realized Ah, that. There you go. So we shortened it to bias and the behavioral just made sense to throw on the end of it. Um, it doesn't quite make sense cuz it overlaps the behavior the word behavior twice cuz it's already in the name but it was available as a handle so that's what it has become uh, there you go
0: i love it well and too is not quite a mouthful even if we're not talking about like on writing or you know like in writing on your website or other areas like it's just
1: a little easier to say too Right. So isn't it funny that this sort of long name got shortened and it became this new name? And I struggled to figure out what was my business name going to be. And don't you know, it didn't end up what it started out as. You probably worked really hard to come up with that too, didn't you?
0: Right. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Well, mine came from, okay, so the primary gal, I used to have this principal and we were talking you know, at the end of the year, springtime, everybody's moving and what are we going to do and all these things. And so he and I were talking and I'm like, what do you see for me next year? And he's like, Amanda, you're my primary gal. Like you are it. You are so good in primary. And so I'm like, okay, I'm staying in primary. I named my blog the primary gal after all the, you know, that literally the next year he moved me to fourth and fifth grade. And I'm like, what? I thought I was your primary gal here. <laughs> like What are you doing? Right, and so then I'm like, well, do I change? But then it's like we know special ed; you could be right back in primary grades before you know it. So I'm like, it it is what it is. So most of the time, I dislike it, but I he was my favorite principal of all time, so I'm going to forgive him for that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dana, for talking with us tonight and just sharing all of your information. And I hope listeners come check you out and discover more, start using visuals, um, asking questions, whether it be on Instagram or, or whatever, because um, you have a lot of information to share. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.